Hi, everyone. We are doing this little disclaimer today because we have a very special guest for this episode. And I just wanted to warn everyone that you might not want to listen to this in front of your children or Or your your super, super religious friends, the ones who don't like to talk about sex or birth control. Yeah. So we're just letting you know in advance that this is not a political story and this is not about Israel. And so just watch. There is a little bit, a little bit of that in there. But you should be careful you listen to this. Yeah. It's not Jewish. It's not Jewish dominatrix in in Germany. No. Um, But it's it's also from a a medical perspective because our guest is a doctor. It is a doctor and it is medical, but you know. And you will learn something. I definitely learned. Yeah, but I don't, I wouldn't want to listen to this in front of my kids. So I'm just letting people know and giving them the option. I mean, I love how we assume that people listen to our podcast in front of their kids. Yeah, the whole family gets together (laughs) around the table and we're like, oh, and you ask a Jew episode just dropped. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, take your kids, uh, I don't know, put them in the mikveh or something, whatever you do with your kids and uh, listen to this episode. And then if you have any questions for us, uh, which I'm sure you do, and we love hearing from you, uh, you can reach us at askajewpod at gmail.com. And that's also our Instagram, askajewpod. We never talk about our Instagram, but it's kind of fun. And sometimes we'll share like, you know, little behind the scenes stuff. And uh, follow us on Substack too, askajew.substack.com. Substack is basically a newsletter. So if you want to get updates from us uh, about new episodes and some more information and a comment board, uh, please sign up. On with the show. I hope you enjoy this episode because it was a big get for me. I was super excited. This is something, someone I've wanted to talk to my whole entire life. So yeah. enjoy. I hope you appreciate what we did for you because this is a big, <laughs> this is a big guy, a big fish. So you're welcome. <laughs> Hi, welcome to Ask a Jew, where a secular, sinful Israeli, that's me, speaks to her holy religious friend. I'm Yael, here with Chaylea. We are the Nancy Pelosi and Diane Feinstein of <laughs> Judaism. Dibs on whoever's younger. Oh my God, they're both ancient. I mean, yeah, decrepit. but one is one is younger. I looked this up. I just don't remember which, which one? one. Probably the, Nancy Pelosi. Yeah, I'll take her. Well, oh great. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm basically like dead in a wheelchair sitting in Congress. <laughs> I mean, I I'm it. not exactly like, you know, competing in the Olympics, but... Anyway, who cares about that? We have such an amazing guest this week. Well, I mean, yeah, if, I could go back, if I could go back to the six, my 16-year-old self in like 1996 and tell myself that I would have Dr. Drew from Loveline on my podcast, I don't know what I would do with myself. I'm and just I'm excited sorry be, we have a doctor. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm sorry. Everyone told me I should not fangirl with you, but it's really hard for me. So welcome, Dr. Drew, to it's Ask a pl- Jew. Uh, pleasure to be here. I, I get Yael doesn't know who I am. That's what I get. I, she was not here in the '90s, so I was not here in the '90s. I grew up. Uh, I grew up in Israel with mm-hmm. uh, very limited access to pop culture. We, I always mm-hmm. say, we're like ten years behind. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Well, I have. I mean, I just want to take like two minutes to tell how I found you because it's a pretty funny story. Um, but I, because I grew up in an ultra orthodox home in a Hasidic home, we didn't have any media really. We didn't listen to non Jewish music anything like that. But I found out about Beverly Hills 90210. That was like my entry point into pop culture. Mm -hmm. And I fell in love with Jason Priestley. And I snuck a Tiger Beat book once that I bought at a gas station. You know, remember they had those like Tiger Beat magazines? That was like a special edition just about Jason Priestley. And in it, he said that he his favorite radio station is K-Rock 106.7 in Los Angeles. So for my bat mitzvah that year... Orly Leitner bought me a Walkman for my bat mitzvah. <laughs> and I, the first was thing I a did Walkman? was, no, the first thing I did was tune into 106.7 and I fell in love with pop culture through K-Rock. I mean, Kevin and Bean and the Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden. And then I discovered the best part, which was Left Line. <laughs> and you and Poor Man, I don't know, people Oh my like, God. So you're back in <laughs> like 1990. You're yeah. really there at the beginning. So <laughs> interestingly, um, you know, people don't appreciate the power of radio. Uh, in, from like 1955 to 2000, it, the young people defined themselves by what radio station they listened to, you know, who they hung Absolutely. out with, which, who their favorite jocks were. They would go to events sort of organized by radio mm-hmm. constantly. Radio was this massive cultural force. And that's really why I got involved with it. I was, I always thought to myself, 
you know, when I had the opportunity is like, God, this, this medium has done so much harm. I bet it could be kind of corralled to do something good. No, but for you, it was a window to the world, right? Like you didn't talk about this stuff at home. No, absolutely. I mean, and you know, I would sneak in, like I would lay in bed from 10 to 12 with my Walkman on under my covers and listen to Loveline. And I was like, I thought, my God, this world of like people calling with the craziest, I mean, scenarios. Like, mm-hmm. you know, my girlfriend is sleeping with my brother and I have a rash. Do I tell him that we have herpes? I don't know. Like, and the crazy part was, I have to say about you, Dr. Drew, like no matter how ridiculous the question was, you were so kind and like, mm-hmm took it seriously and professionally, even if like Adam or whoever was with you was making total shit out of it. Well, they were taking shit. They were making it digestible for people. You know what I mean? (laughs) Me me in a box is a very boring experience. And so (laughs) he was making it accessible to people. And, and all I was doing was, you know, what I did all day, you know, this is, this is what was out there in the world at the time. I I worked in a psychiatric hospital for 35 years and uh, I did general medicine for 35. I was still doing general medicine 40 years. And um, it was just what was going on. I, you got you got to remember the original motivation in 1983 when I got started was we were just we had just stopped calling this condition grids and we're starting to call it AIDS. Mm-hmm. And I was treating AIDS patients hand over fist. We had just discovered the one of the characteristics of the causative agent. We called it HTLV3, if you remember all the way back to then. Oh my gosh. And I had this opportunity to go on the, and by the way, one Anthony Fauci was pounding on us young physicians to go out and educate about this condition. And I went on this radio show and and this, which was Loveline at the time. And young people had never heard of this. I couldn't believe it. No one was talking to them about it. So I thought, man, I got to keep doing this. I got to, you know, can I come back? And so I did it one night a week. I thought I was doing community service for 10 years. Wow. And, and then all of a sudden it went to five nights a week. And then all of a sudden it was a TV show. And it just, yeah. it just kept going. <laughs> it's not really what you incredible. expected your your medical career necessarily to turn into? N- not even remotely. Like in, <laughs> under no, like, it, well, in fact, I pushed it away for many years. I mean, that's why I didn't use my real name. And I just did it on Sunday nights. And, you know, I just practiced medicine all week. And, you know, I didn't want to be bothered. Even when the TV came around, I was like, look, I, I don't know what it, I don't know how you do a TV show, but but you I've got a couple hours on Friday evening and Saturday evening. If you can shove it in there, I, I can I can manage it. Mm-hmm. And that's when we did it. Wow. That's it's so interesting. I mean, and I, I could just tell you from a cultural context, like a lot of my friends, you know, we didn't talk about these things really in school or with our parents. I well, mean, this was, it's not, there was no internet. There was no source. Right, exactly. And, and I yeah. was 24 years old when I started. And my original sort of naive, one of my little ideas was, you know, I know what 17 year olds are up to and what would I have <laughs> wanted? What, what access would I have needed at 17? What do I wish somebody could answer for me? And then it sort of evolved from there. Yeah. I mean, it's sad. I feel sad that kids don't really have that kind of thing today where we have one place to go where we trust the person telling us, mm-hmm. you know, the information now with the internet. I mean, I, I know there's a lot more available, but it's so hard to know what's real and what's not real and what's true. I, I and, still do a show called After Dark over at your yeah. mom's house. Yeah. And, and that and that is the <laughs> modern incarnation of all this stuff. Yeah. They still come with a lot of the same stuff. Yeah. Like is meth good for erectile dysfunction? Right. I heard that. I heard that <laughs> question. <laughs> right. That's what our listeners want to know. <laughs> yeah, we have so many math listeners. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, but it's not just the questions. It's, it's also, I think, your reaction to the questions, too, is like, yeah. you know, like I, w- I was listening to a few episodes before and somebody asked a question and something that I could relate to. And then I was like, oh, but is he going to like freak out or is he going to be like, oh, that's a very common problem, you know? So <laughs> it, it's like like having like overhearing these conversations that you're not necessarily having with your friends or definitely not your parents or yeah. especially as a well, young adult. It, and and what, what people always miss in these kinds of programs is ultimately these are medical questions. This is a uh-huh. medical show. And so the, all the incarnations of the show have always been with psychologists and relationship experts mm-hmm, as though mm-hmm. there is such a thing. This is a medical show. <laughs> you, you, you have to have somebody with a lot of psychiatric and medical experience. That's so true. So can we ask you about your Judaism? Are you, do you? I, I figured you might. Yeah. <laughs> What's your, tell us your Jewish story. It's not it very, a, you can't be a worse Jew than I am. So that's oh, No, I believe I can. I, I'm, I'm <laughs> Jew-ish. Let's give it a try. <laughs> Jew-ish, as many of my New York friends say. So, uh, so my 
grandfather and grandmother on my dad's side came from a deep, long Jewish heritage in Ukraine and Belarus, and were essentially escaping the Holodomor and uh, lived through some of the Bolshevik stuff and were sponsored to come over to first, I think they came through Toronto and then Hartford and then finally Chicago, which is where a lot of the diaspora ended up, New York and Chicago. And uh, they were in essentially a Jewish ghetto. Uh, They started a restaurant just in time for the depression and lost everything. And along comes my father, who was thoroughly traumatized by all that. And of course, had to communicate that to me in, in, in <laughs> profound ways. So that still is under my skin too. Uh, I lived all, I lived the diaspora and the depression through my family. Oh. Um, and he was raised, uh, I, I, certainly not Orthodox, but I, uh, also not reform or conservative. It was just sort of what immigrants were doing. Right. A- and, uh, and so when he got out here in Southern California, he thought he'd found the promised land and uh, married a Shih Tzu. And <laughs> she allegedly converted. However, I never saw any evidence of that. <laughs> so that, that I think it was by in name only. Um, and I was raised, you know, originally to be able to navigate his extended family, which were out here. A lot of them were out here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there were regular Passovers and, you know, gatherings and reading letters from the old country. And, you know, there were still a lot of people back in the Ukraine. And they all just called that Russia. We were all just, I was always told <laughs> I was Russian. I was Russian. Right. I was Russian. It's only recently I found out I was actually Ukrainian. Uh, and, it's a branding uh, thing now. <laughs> yeah. And Belarusian, which, you know, I think maybe, her, I don't under, there was a lot of Belarus Ukraine couples yes. going on back then. I don't <laughs> understand. Well, some matchmaker had that all sort of wired up or something. Uh, very weird. Um, and so I was raised until about third or fourth grade, probably fourth grade, to be able to navigate his family. So I went to Saturday school. I was at the Wilshire Boulevard Temple oh, all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did not get bar mitzvah. There was suddenly a massive abandonment of, of my <laughs> education and Jewish Jewish life when I was nine. Just like it like came to an stop. end. It wow. came to a stop, a close. My uncle, his brother, and his kids, who I was very close with, one of them went on, uh, actually became, I think, went to went to Israel and spoke good Hebrew. Uh, and then the other two, it stopped. It stopped mm. with them, the two. Mm. And, they, and they were both physicians. And I, I always had the feeling that it had something to do with, and my uncle became a psychoanalyst. And that mm. seemed to what really put a stop to him. Like, mm. and, and one of his daughters felt that they were sort of robbed of their heritage and, you know, wish, wish they'd been a little more. Cause his, and their, their mom was Jewish also. Wow. Uh, uh so that's it. You know, there was a connection for a minute and then it sort of drifted away. Um, I, I could, wow. I knew enough to navigate and then, but not feel comfortable. Right, <laughs> right. So, that's so funny. Have you been to Israel? Have you ever been to Israel? My daughter has. She went oh, on okay. the birthright. She did birthright. Oh, nice. oh, good. Did you like it? She did. Uh, and then she got radicalized at college. Oh, um, that happens. <clears throat> yes. And then all of a sudden that was all propaganda. And now wow. she's sort of coming back into a more moderate position. Yeah, and that happens too. <laughs> That's uh, we, we see this arc a lot, unfortunately. And, yes. and you know, sometimes the, the, the Jewish kids are the ones who kind of, I guess, feel the need to over overcompensate. Yeah. Well, certainly you know. if you're living in New York, that's sort of the thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and I would... I, I literally would question them. I'm like, what, what are you talking? About? Exactly, what do you mean? What do you, what do you even? They're just like slogans, slogans, slogans. I'm like, what is that? What is that? What are you? What are you actually talking about? What do you actually know about these things you're talking about? Nothing, of course. Yeah, yeah. So I, I have like a weird question. Do you know? I mean, I guess if you, probably at nine, no one told you about like the laws of like intimacy in Judaism. Like, do you? How much do you know about that? Or like the mikvah? Are you familiar with these no. ideas or concepts? No, only through like. Uh, that's so interesting. Reality television. Right. That's so interesting. No, because like I would love, I mean, I'm so curious what you would think about like the way we do marriage in the Orthodox world. I mean, the fact that like, I don't know, do you know that we don't 
touch each other for two weeks and then go to the mikvah. And it's all based on like the women's menstrual cycle. And I, I don't know. Are you familiar yeah. with that? And apparently all? they don't have sex through a sheet. I learned. I thought. <laughs> we that's do like the Mormons. The Mormons do that. <laughs> that's the Mormon thing. Uh, I don't judge. You know what I mean? I, I so <laughs> I really don't. And, and I, and I just look at the data and things that are very structured and arranged and have lots of uh, spiritual components do pretty well from a yeah. data standpoint. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and so we've gone all the way to the other end. And it's like, I'm not sure that's good either. I'm not, I don't judge. Right. I, I, no, I am a big advocate for this, actually, because I do. I mean, that's the lifestyle I live in. And I think it's really healthy for like a couple, you know, I'm married 22 years and it just keeps it keeps things fresh and exciting in a way that like you is very uncommon I think. Explain why and how. Well, basically, I mean, sorry, my husband listens to this, so I apologize in advance to him because <laughs> I'm going to get really personal. But um, I mean, basically, when a woman starts her period, mm-hmm. there's no physical contact between the husband and wife until she finishes menstruating and then counts seven clean days. So usually you, you have your period for like five or six days, then seven clean days. And then on the seventh night after, you know, that you go to the mikvah, the woman spends the day like preparing and getting all clean and fresh. And I mean, really, it's a really good special like going to day. The spa? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you have to head to toe. Everything I can see is why fresh. women would like this. First of all, my, yeah. my wife would just call this getting my husband out of my hair. Yeah. And secondly, <laughs> you know, there's a lot that goes on in a woman's experience that men don't quite get. And she was coaching me up the other day about how much it's this kind of thing, like preparing and, and yeah. having a meeting up later and kind of thing is, is mm. very meaningful to her. And, you know, just, yeah. and we're, you know, 40 years into our relationship. Yeah. And, yeah. I uh, mean, it's, it's an incredible feeling to like, even after all these years, like mikvah night, the night that the woman goes to the mikvah is exciting. And like, mm. it's the one night that the husband is all of a sudden very available to come home early and help mm. and, you know, <laughs> make sure that the wife has whatever she needs to be able to go to the mikvah and make all the arrangements. And it's just, and then it's exciting because you haven't, I mean, there's no touching. We don't hug or kiss or we mm. have separate, like most Orthodox couples have separate beds in the bedroom. And so you only sleep in one bed during the time that you can be together. Otherwise you sleep, you know, you don't share a bed. I mean, it's really like so kind of exciting. Yeah. Well, so back to the sort of dirty versus clean, isn't that get a little, kind of weird for you? So that's like a, like an external explanation for mikvah. We are never, not one time ever told anything about being dirty. It's not about that. Okay. It's about a, a woman's cycle of when your body is, you know, ready and like excited and interested yeah. in Isn't it procreation in a way. too? Yeah, right. it's because you're right. really yeah. going to the mix of the most already. Well, right. it, it's that some people, some women do have, you know, high, higher sex drive in and around ovulation, but it's it's a way to sort of increase the probability yes. of uh, fertility. Right. You're, right. You're, they're off by about five days on average, <laughs> but, but, but I'm guessing the, the husband is not done after one night. Right. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> There's a little wiggle room there. Yeah. Well, and that's true because you, you have a feeling of like, well, I'm getting my period soon, so we better get mm. some action in the next, you know, whatever. So it, it's just a nice, like kind of fresh way of doing it. And obviously when you're pregnant, you don't do it or when you go through. So, so how do we reconcile when, when women, I, it's, it's reminds me of what I hear sometime from some of the Muslim women and their practices. They like, like them. And, and ha, how would you respond to somebody who would say, no, you're, you're being oppressed. You don't understand. This is <laughs> Stockholm syndrome. What, what do you say to people that come at you with that kind of stuff? I mean, it's just talk to anyone. I mean, I get that there are some women who don't like this practice and, you know, they have to figure it out for themselves if they want to do it or not. But if you talk to any of my friends or family or me personally, I mean, it really puts us in the driver's seat of our sex lives. I mean, I get to control when, how, where, and everything. So uh, to me, it's the most empowering feeling. Like, I'm, I feel very empowered so, by it. So this is this weird thing. I remember back... Uh, Gosh, I must have just finished medical school. This woman from Williams College wrote a book called A Return to Modesty. Mm -hmm. And she was sort of chronicling all the, these sorts of examples, uh, socially and through history, that that caused, that, that granted women power through 
she used the general term modesty. Mm -hmm. uh, and we completely abandoned that in yeah. this country, mm -hmm. did we not? Or at least largely. I mean, I work on a college campus professionally, so <laughs> I have a lot to say about young girls and women. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's, I, I find it empowering. I know that's not for everyone. And I know that it's difficult for some people, but you know, it works. I think there's something really special about newness every month of like the excitement of that well, it, night. It, it reminds you know? me what, what you were saying. And by the way, this isn't, you know, I don't, again, I don't judge. We're just talking about your Right, exactly. Practices. Yeah, totally. Uh, uh, it reminds me, though, of things I've heard from people that retain their virginity until they get married. Right. They, they'll say the same, they'll report the same kind of special, exciting, something. Right. And I, I'm going to say more so from the women than from the men, which is what you're <laughs> sort of, which is sort of what yeah. you're expressing yeah. here, too, you yeah. know? yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, we also maintain our virginity until we get married, right, but right. that's why we get married at 20 or 21 because, well, that's the, you know. That's sort of the downside, right? It's exactly. like you might rush into it a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> and I then know. what if you're stuck with, I mean, what it if you happens. get married and you're like not sexually compatible? Mm -hmm. It happens. It does happen. I mean, we, in the, or in the ultra-Orthodox world, men and women don't, there's no physical contact before the wedding. So it's not like you can check out if you if he's a good kisser or like I mean you just you know if you have the right chemistry and you like each other and you respect each other the idea is that you could make anything work you know if you have the right intentions right if you come mm. into it for the right purposes um you can make it work you can learn how to do you be think attracted to Dr. each other Drew, that you can make anything work if you have like a good connection of the mind yeah well, do you, you think you can make that. the emotional part work I think that is a construct that works for some people. I'm not sure I could do that. I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, I know I can't, but I'm like not a yeah. good example of anything. <laughs> <laughs> but but I certainly hear that. I mean, look, Fiddler on the Roof was about this. <laughs> yeah, but then she ran off with the communist. No, 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 no. The, the between the matchmate, yeah, and his wife. Like, yeah. They were like, "Do you, we actually love each other?" Been, she's like, "What are you talking about?" Of course we do. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, yeah, well, that's right. I do love you. It's like, oh, yeah. all this together. We've, we've built. And this is this is something that's, I I think, to, to this point, I am 100% in agreement, which is that we have lost track of the fact that marriage and long-term relationships are to build a life and to build mm -hmm. a family. Mm -hmm. And we yeah. what we focused on is the romantic connection and not the purpose, you know, and, and yeah. the and the rich territory of what it means to build a life together. Mm -hmm. uh, and some and what you're saying is building a life leads to the, the intimacy and the feelings and stuff, which which makes some sense to me. Again, I'm not sure I can do it, but it makes sense to me yeah. that it, it happens. Uh, I, what I don't like is, you know, rigidity and people getting locked in things and, yeah. you know, being too ashamed uh, by, you know, their 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 culture and stuff. Then that's hard for people. It's really hard when they become unhappy. How, how does the country of Israel deal with all these differences? I'm just curious about that. Um, <laughs> oh, Israel is, is interesting because it's very liberated on one hand, like, you know, Tel Aviv, it's like the gay capital of the Middle East. Not that there's a lot of competition there, <laughs> but it's like, you know, you'll walk down the street in Tel Aviv and everybody's like half naked because it's super hot. Is there gay and, marriage? Um, so yeah. it's gay marriage is, I think, recognized, but not performed. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a little complicated because of, of Chayalaz people who control the <laughs> marriage institution. <laughs> but there's, um, you know, there's a huge like pride parade. There's a big like, you know, there's a lot of like. Are they, are they fighting for more privileges? Yes, always okay. Yeah. Okay. fighting for more privileges. Um, but I think in culture, like we just had a Eurovision Song Contest a few, uh, about a week ago. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Yep. Um, also known as, as the Gay Olympics. <laughs> and in... Um, <laughs> 1995, I think, Israel won. And, and Israelis can tell you about every time we won because it's, like, more important to us than, like, winning a war because it's, like, <laughs> just acceptance, which is what we crave. Um, and, you know, we had Dana International. It was 1998, maybe, who was uh, a trans woman. And that was before, like, trans was, like, even, uh, you know, a thing. Look at but you guys. She yeah. was representing, you know, the, the state of Israel officially. So, <clears throat> you know, it, it's a country of... of um, you know, like it's a bit of a, a countries of, of I was going to say schizophrenic, but I, I don't I, I don't want to disrespect your psychiatric background. But that's what people in Israel say about it. Um, 
you know, a lot of ups and downs, a lot of big differences. You can see, you know, uh, two men uh, kissing on TV, but you could also walk into a Haredi neighborhood, which is something that happened recently, and see that they covered um, the hair products that showed women on them, like, you know, the the hair coloring, and they covered them because it was like two, you know, I guess people were on erections because they saw somebody's (laughs) hair. So, you know, it's a country of of a lot of differences. And and it was founded by, you know, by secular Jews, by by socialist Jews. Uh, So there's there's something for everyone, I guess. Yeah, that's true. I guess that's the right way to say it. But anyway, I I don't think we ever on this side of the Atlantic or however we describe the the distance, um, (laughs) think about the fact that our our values are very much attached to separating church and state. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we don't really think about the fact that Israel is a religious state. I mean, that's what yeah. it is defined yeah. as. And, and, and what that means, to, we just never talk about it. At least I never hear a conversation about that. And I'll tell you something that sounds weird. When I was growing up, we didn't think about it either. Uh. It was just some things we accepted, like there's no, um, you know, buses on the Sabbath. Or, you know, you don't drive on Yom Kippur. But I feel like culturally, we very much looked to America. Like this is the 90s, right? So mm-hmm. very much looked to, you know, the music coming from from Europe and from the U.S. And Haile and I grew up on the same like stupid sitcoms that were kind of our lens to the world. So, you know, when I came here eventually in 2007, you know, I thought I was just going to walk into like, and I came to L.A., I thought I was just walking into like a set of Melrose Place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um mm-hmm. So we're, you know, we're very much like influenced by that, but also the Jewish influence, which now has... And everybody speaks English, I've noticed, or at least most people, right? Uh, most people do, and, yeah. And is that through the school? Uh, both school and culturally. So, mm. you know, the, the TV shows mm. and the movies aren't dubbed, which mm. is interesting. Um, and, you know, I was just talking to... My sister is an English teacher. She teaches uh, fifth grade in Israel. And... Um, <laughs> She was, uh, my niece is nine and I was talking to her on the phone and she's like, yeah, my, uh, Ella, her daughter is, uh, she's helping me grade papers because <laughs> oh, wow. she's picked up, I mean, obviously, you know, supervising, but you know, they pick up so much English now from like TikTok well, and, and but, YouTube. And you're, you have zero accent. That's the other thing I find interesting. I know. So that yeah. you must've started early. I started early. So I lived between the ages of four and eight. I lived in Australia. Oh, there you go. Um, so I learned English at a young age. Yeah, and then I think I dropped, my theory is that I dropped the Australian accent because I was embarrassed. Because <laughs> it was like weird when I came to Israel uh, in the 90s and, um, you know, going to English class and, and speaking in English and thinking I'm like cool because I know English. Yeah. Uh, but sounding mm-hmm. like Crocodile Dundee. So <laughs> I think I developed this. And my older sisters still have it. But wow. I've been told I have a very generic Midwestern accent. I don't and, know. No, I'd say West Coast. Yeah. Like, yeah. like oh, yeah. Like, really, yeah, California. I agree. Yeah. Right. TV. TV. TV yeah. raised me, as <laughs> yeah, Homer Simpson said. TV it. raised me and I turned out TV. You're, you're, in the, you're in the back of your throat the way other non-Americans can't do it. Yeah, she's good. You, yeah. you are good, yeah, Al. You sound My very Hebrew American. is pretty good, too. I don't want to, uh, you know, show off, but. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dr. Drew. Yeah. What is going on with young people? What, like, what? <laughs> what is wrong with them? Tell yeah. us in a nutshell, like, I what it's, is going to be. I, I, my, I'm feeling really, like, heartbroken for so many. Mm. And I, I think, I think we're, I, again, I can only speak to this country and sort of what I hear. Yeah. Uh, a lot of confusion, a lot of misery. I think COVID just destroyed particularly 8 to 15-year-olds. Uh, I mm. predicted it the moment the lockdowns began. And the proof is in the pudding. The data is in. And the screens have made things so much worse. We will we will look at screens the way we look at tobacco one day. Mm. For now, we're not. Uh, my friends that study this stuff allow their kids only an hour a day, and they think even that may be too much, but they allow it. Uh, and so, you know, screens meet social isolation, meets, meets the tail end of post-structuralism. I, huh. I'm really trying to put that piece in now. I'm trying to understand that. I talked to a guy yesterday 
that really uh, was reared in the, the heat of uh, Foucault and post-structuralist philosophy. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting to hear, yeah, I'm just thinking about this today, so it's funny you would, you would, we would have this conversation and it, this, this, these thinking, this thoughts I'm having will evolve, but here's my, my nascent ideas about it. He was reared in the deepest hour, darkest hours of post-structuralism. <laughs> and it, it affected his education thoroughly. I mean, okay. it's almost like he got no, he was an art historian at the time and it's almost like he got no art history and only got critical theory looking at art history. Uh. And that experience, that educational academic sort of frame is so detached from reality and so steeped in theory that it, it, send, it has sent a generation and a half into an ideological tailspin where, where, they're, where they're, all their thinking does not connect to reality. I mean, they were trained with essentially at its core, forget the, the bullshit that is post-structuralism. I mean, it's just the French laugh at us. I mean, they just laugh like <laughs> these these are ancient French philosophers that have not been relevant in 75 years. Why are you people so preoccupied with them? I've, I've literally heard French philosophers speak That's about this. Funny. Like, I didn't know the French are like mock this now. <laughs> oh, completely. They're like, they're like, this is, well, not just mock it. They're like in disbelief. Like they can't figure it out. Like, well, these guys were clearly a joke. They uh-huh. clearly have no relevance. They were completely swept over very quickly into more they're meaningful. They're a thought exercise. They're a nice the, thought exercise for a exa- class. That, that is exactly correct. And I mm-hmm. think they were a way for academicians to come up with new and novel publications, essentially. Mm-hmm. And, like it's fun and, to think about, right? And, That's and about it. It. it, it I, I don't even think it's that. <laughs> I don't even think it's that because because it goes nowhere. It doesn't help anybody. Derrida and Chaucer, these guys, I think I really think they were actually playing a joke. I think they actually thought they were funny. Uh, Foucault was serious business, and Foucault destroyed a ton of stuff, including our state healthcare system, our state mental health care system, which is why we have homeless and mental health. Uh, oh, I people. wish we could talk about and, this forever. Oh, <laughs> I could talk about forever, and why we have mental health patients in prison. It's because of Michel Foucault, everybody. That's that, and then a bunch of psychoanalysts who were equally yeah. influenced by him that uh, that that essentially owned the National Institute of Mental Health for 40 years. Not have you read, uh, mm. have you read uh, The Great Pretender? Um, I feel like I have. What is that? About, uh, I'm, I'm going to, you have to help me out here. It's about the doctor in the 70s in Stanford that did this Yes, um, yes, I did study. read it. Yes, I, um, he, he, was, he did the uh, prison experiment. Yeah, the prison uh, experiment. And, and, or, and, and I did read this. It, no, the whole not, thing. The, not the prison experiment. This um, He took his graduate students in psychology and sent them to check themselves into mental institutions. Oh, yes, I'm aware of that one and too. And then yeah. they came out yeah. with all these horrible stories yeah, about how yeah. horrible it was, and it yeah. was right around the time of, you know, the... Um, <laughs> The Geraldo Rivera story. It, re- it really was the heels of Ken Kesey and the um, One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, which, yes, yes, which I recently film. just watched. And the American public were told, essentially, that's a, it was a documentary. They were, <laughs> yeah, they were led yeah, to believe yeah. that this fictionalized <laughs> film, which was completely detached from the clinical reality, yeah. was some sort of documentary of what was going on in, in, in uh, psychiatric institutions. Yeah. So, please, it just was one catastrophe after another. Anyway, these people did untoward harm. Um, I mean, like in, in, in just immense, immense harm. We will maybe yeah. in 50 years understand the depths of it. Uh, but and the people today who see those people on the street and say they are better off on the street are like history will judge them very harshly. Mm-hmm. They are murderers, those people. Mm-hmm. You yeah. are engaging in manslaughter. It's passive manslaughter. Wow. These are progressive illnesses that end in death period. Mm -hmm. And we have this strange, one of the many strange phenomenons, particularly in this state of California, if somebody has dementia Mm -hmm. with a symptom complex of confusion and disorganization and hallucinations, like a a Lewy body dementia, Mm -hmm. is standing next to somebody with schizophrenia who is disorganized Mm -hmm. and speaking nonsense and uh, is confused, if you don't treat the demented patient, you are guilty of mm-hmm. patient abuse. And if he gets in any harm, you will have, be held accountable. Mm. The schizophrenic, you're not allowed to go near. You hmm. can't even say, can I help you? Because you're, hmm. they're living their best life. And who are you to say otherwise? Yeah, post-structuralism, wow. right? That's it. Uh, and so have, it's ki- killing people. Do I have what? Do you have any <laughs> concrete, like, for, what, what do we have to do first? 
for our kids? Like, what, what's the first thing we need to focus on? Or for our kids? Couple well, let me finish things. the yeah. poster. I haven't finished yeah, the Yeah, go the, ahead. Go uh, ahead. The, uh, <laughs> we so, just so, want to yeah. talk about homelessness, Tyler. <laughs> no, I want to talk, talk about, about your homelessness. Kids. No, I want to hear it and finish. And what do they do in Israel? Do they treat people with mental illness? Of course. Um, you know, I, I I wish I knew. I, I, it's I should very know different. this because my a, mom's a psychologist. It's very it's different because it's a high... It's a very high trust society in Israel, so it's already mm-hmm. a bit of it's a but very different. But there are mental, yeah. There are mental institutions. I remember going to one as a volunteer when I was in high school and meeting meeting some of the patients there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was also it was also a different era. But you know, everything's changed so much now with with fentanyl and and just like the drugs being a hundred times cheaper and a hundred times mm-hmm. stronger. And mm-hmm. and I was um, there's this really cool thing. You're in LA. Um, there's this really cool thing called the Skid Row Run Club which I may mm-hmm. have talked about here once. So I, I used to work with law enforcement and um, LAPD does this thing where they go a few times a week in the morning and they run at Skid Row with like former former addicts, former homeless people. Mm-hmm. And really cool. They do the marathon everything. Um, and I was, uh, I was running with some guy and we were talking. He used to live there. He's clean now. And he's like, every single person who is out here living in a tent is living in a tent because they're using. Mm-hmm. That's, and and, you're, uh, and California will will go. No, the real face of homelessness is the mother of three that just lost their job. Please, yeah. the governor do some mm-hmm. find that woman, show her to me. <laughs> Walk in any of the tents anywhere in Hollywood or downtown. You tell me you find that woman. Find one the, of them. The drugs that they they take today, the the you know the meth with the fentanyl, and that yep. they're a lot less what fun than they used to be. Yep. And it makes you want to just like put your hoodie on. And we see that yep. in New York all the time. People walk right. in the middle of the summer with their hoodie. And they're, mm-hmm. and by the way, any any time I see somebody with a mask in New York, mm-hmm. like a, a medical mask, they're either like a 25-year-old Jewish kid on the Upper West Side <laughs> or somebody who's going to like rob me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because they mm-hmm. just want to be like under covers, intense mm-hmm. using, which is fine. But once it starts like inflicting on my like you know, safety, then, you know, we got okay, So finish it's your diagnosis. Let's killing hear. them. It's killing them. <laughs> so I was, I was going through what's going on with the, with the younger people. Yes. So they've been yes. under the influence of essentially the broad sweep of critical theory, which mm-hmm. is that objectivity doesn't exist. Everything mm-hmm. is subjective and political and now have at it, which is literally teaching young people that reality doesn't exist mm-hmm. and that you can't. And if you assess reality, you're a racist or you're an old white guy. And, and so this is confusing. It is ends. It ends up in, in a lot of misery and untoward harm again. So they they are sort of slowly finding their way back to reality, but How? it's taking time. Reality always comes to bear. Reality has a way <laughs> of coming in on you, and uh, they start to look at these things that were happening. And they're going, oh, "Oh my God, what did I? What did I, you know? I was I was brainwashed. I was I was what, what did I? What was I thinking? I, this is not how it works at all. And I I thought this was all rigged, and I thought this was a oh, you know, I thought this was terrible. It turns out it was not so bad, <laughs> uh, but it's it's a slow process. Uh, so. You know, in terms of what do you do for your kids, um, I, I kids, the broad strokes would be keep them in reality. You know, education, yeah. obviously, you know, that's the one thing that the Jewish community has been very good at for a very long time. <laughs> and by the way, as a quick sidebar, I, I have decided that the Armenians are the lost tribe of Israel. <laughs> I, and, and we I'm were not just kidding. talking about that. First of kidding. all, they gave us twelve points in Eurovision, which <laughs> that's how you know we're. That's how we judge like geopolitical relationships in this world. And you know, we have like kind of a Holocaust sympathy. Hey, listen, there, there are bros. Yes, there, there is a, there is a, there is a, uh, a, a genocide sympathy. But, but more importantly, I dare you to go spend an evening at an Armenian event, mm-hmm. and it will feel ex- so familiar to you. They, <laughs> they, they go in and out of a secret language. Yeah. The, the humor is exactly the same. Focus on family and education. I mean, it's exactly the same. It's so oh, crazy. They're also yeah. hairy like us. Yeah. Just, it <laughs> right. is, I, I, I was at an event. I just thought, oh, this is <laughs> this is very familiar. And, you know, Noah's Ark is supposed to have landed at Mount Ararat. Mm-hmm. So, really? Yes. Yeah, yes. And, oh. and so, which is right over the main city of, of Ar- Armenia. Yeah. And, and so it, it, it is something there. I am telling you, I, I promise you it, it but anyway, but this education, so education is often yes. critical, important, but objective education, you know, I, I'm not sure, you know, my kids all went to the fancy, fancy schools. I'm not sure I would do that again. Right. I think mm. uh, you get great education, you know, with, 
uh, you know, with your guidance at most state schools, larger schools, um, you know, let them kind of find their way. But the indoctrination at the big schools are just, you know, just out of control. Yeah, I think out of control. Is it oh, true that young people are having less sex than ever? Is that well? Yes, uh, that is yeah. definitely true, and I don't think it's a good thing. I, I think that's part of the. Uh, I don't. I don't want to use too strong a word. I'm going to use. I'm going to use a word that's not quite accurate, but the sort of the misery they're in and have been mm-hmm. in for quite some time. Uh, there's multiple layers to that. One is obviously the dating apps. Are really only only at the high end are you successful there? Right. And those right. people, it turns out, are having a lot of sex. That that group is, but that's about ten percent. Yeah. Uh, everybody oh, else is under the sway of Me Too, and so mm-hmm. I, I saw this happen when my kids were in college and afterwards in graduate school and stuff. The men are scared to death. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> of being seen as predatory or toxically masculine yeah. or being accused of something. So they pull back. Uh, they're not, they don't do anything. They're afraid even to sort of ask, you know, to, mm. to, you know, for dates, things like that off the table. And so they don't develop the skill of socializing mm. and figure out who they are or what they want and how to just hang out with somebody. No, doesn't happen. There is a hanging out thing that happens as groups, but an individual intimacy, just no. And so there's no skill. There is fear of being seen as something. Mm. And then there's no opportunity. And then there's a lot of um, – this is sort of where it's gone sideways is I saw a lot of young males saying – you know, I, I really, I, this is, it, women are difficult. They're hard. I don't know how to do this. I've got porn. I've got mm. porn. It's okay. The porn yeah. is really good. And now for the first time, I am hearing them say things like, you know, they have these massage parlors where you can, mm. for a couple bucks, mm. you know, and. And that's uh, legit now. Sex work is like. Correct. Is like very, you know, considered like Damn. empowerment today. Tomorrow it might be something else. <laughs> Correct. And so, mm-hmm. and so I, I had not heard that my entire career starting to hear that in the last six wow. months. Yeah. And so they're just, it's going to go somewhere. It's going sort of sideways right now. I feel bad for these boys because they're all, like, I feel like boys always are trying to do what they think girls want to Correct. Get, get some. Correct. And now girls, like their girls are told to hate men. Correct. So they're like, well, I, I guess I'm out. That, I don't that, know. that is, that is a, that, I, I must tell you something, that little vignette you just told is how they're feeling. Maybe I, I have that a is, career is, in uh, medical <laughs> advice. <laughs> no, it, it really is how, how they're, how it's going down. Now I, I do feel like, again, people are kind of coming out of it a little bit. There, there's, mm-hmm. thank goodness, the, <laughs> the misery of social isolation, <laughs> social isolation has created a certain amount of hunger for social contact. So I'm sort of seeing that though, though lately that seems to have died down a little bit too. So it, it's, it's just a, it's a mess. It's is a, that like so, would that it's be considered like social anxiety, like diagnosis wise? Well, I, again, that is there are a lot of specific criteria to it. But of course, if you don't have a skill with social navigation, you're going to have social anxiety, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of that. A is lot of there that. is there a role that birth control is playing in young girls? And like, I know this has been a big topic lately, where people are starting to ask questions about, you know, early use of birth control and any hormone, especially or hormonal birth control and right. anti anxiety medication. Yes. I mean, are you seeing that in young oh, girls God, that it's yes. affecting I, it's, women? It's, Oh, one hundred percent. I mean, yeah. it's been driving me crazy for years. Right. Which is at at its core, I want my physician peers at least to explain to young women what the side effects of these hormonal contraceptives are. Right. What I get is the calls later with them going, you know, I have pain with intercourse, I have no sex right. drive, I have um, depressed all the time, and these high potency progesterones, even in the impregnated IUDs, are sufficient to cause tremendous symptomatology. And hmm. in about 10% of cases, it may not revert when you get off the pill. Wow. And so this needs to be discussed. And the it, it is it is ubiquitous. And then you add into that, now now the woman, young woman, a 20-year-old goes to the, you know, the dispensary at the college. She's on a high right. potency progesterone for birth control pills, complains of depression. Now she's on an SSRI. Right. Now <laughs> I know. libido completely shut down, completely <laughs> mm-hmm. gone. 
Uh, and and women have this tendency to blame themselves for everything. So 100%. They, they go through these inventories like, well, I'm not taking care of myself properly. I'm not sleeping properly. I'm, I'm not uh, achieving intimacy. I'm not being of service properly. I must, you know, it's all me. I'm all me. I'm all wrong. And th- those inventories br- break my heart when especially, in fact, the, the problem is my profession has screwed you up. Mm-hmm. And that to me is just disgusting. Uh, I haven't and, heard that until I, I listened to you talk about it. I mean, the, the birth control thing. You heard it, you hear about it with SSRIs, but... Yep. You know, I, I, I mean, I had a situation because I have four kids and I went on birth control like in between a couple of them. And I did this like this shot, this is a years ago, but they were giving me a shot every three months. I yep. forgot what it was. It's a progesterone and, shot. Yeah, a progesterone shot. And, you know, because they, I, no one told me anything about it except, oh, it's the easiest form of birth control. You don't have to do right. anything. You get a shot, you're done. I'm like, great. I have all these little kids. That's what I want to do. Well, fast forward a few months, I like gained tons of weight. I felt like shit all the time. Mm-hmm. It was horrible. So I stopped. At and least then, you were able to recognize that's what it was. Well, guess what happened after that? I uh, ended up in the hospital twice because bleeding. I had such bad migraines that oh, I thought migraine. I had a stroke, oh, wow. right? Because I was coming out mm. of the whole, and I'm like not, I'm just not a person that has health issues. Thank God I never go to the doctor. I'm like fine. And mm. I, I found myself two times in within a month ending up in the emergency room because I literally thought I had a stroke because I couldn't I, move half my body. Oh, Jesus. And I said, I'm never doing that again. Like I'm not putting hormones that was in my body. From the, that was coming off or from the progesterone? That was coming off. Like I Because many I times people get, next, get migraines from the progesterone and then you're stuck with it for three months months. I know. Well, I don't know. I just stopped. I didn't go to like the next appointment to get my shot. Mm -hmm. And so that like the next cycle, I just, I couldn't function as a human. I was Mm -hmm. like, and I said to myself, I'm just not doing this again. I'm not Mm -hmm. putting hormones in my body that I don't need. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. just, I don't know. And I wish more young girls would recognize that if they don't need it, they shouldn't be doing it. Or at least have a conversation about side effects. My God, there's ways to adjust these things so you don't get them and keep an eye out and you should be stopping if if you are having side effects. It's just just so such mismanagement. But but why are doctors so afraid or I don't know, are they, is it that they don't know or is it a a lot of there there was a whole period of time where they didn't know because of course the drug companies didn't, you know, didn't want anybody to know about Mm. these side effects. And so they didn't have the experience where they really understood that's what was happening number one number two they don't have time to do right. this number three is often not physicians prescribing it's nurse practitioners right. and, and parent or something number number four um there's this weird philosophy as we got to stop the pregnancy don't worry about the side effects just got mm. make sure they don't get pregnant mm. and we're doing the same thing with opiates today just mm. get them on the suboxone just make sure they don't die of the opiate just get them on the, yeah. get, give them the naltrexone don't, don't worry about it and, they, and, and because there's this over-prioritization of therapeutic endpoint, the clinicians aren't even thinking about the other stuff. Mm. And so it's just a way, very unsophisticated way of treating patients. All right. I know I have a sister I've, who has terrible eczema her whole life, mm. like really, really bad eczema. Mm-hmm. And she cannot find a doctor who will sit down with her and go from A to Z, asking all the questions, go doing all the tests, trying to figure out what Mm. is the underlying thing. She's done all the food things she's done. And all Mm. she wants is someone to say to her, like, it's hormonal or it's this or it's that. And and it's like, she goes to every kind of doctor and she's almost given up, like, thinking about Western medicine and and like maybe it's time to just go to like Eastern medicine and forget, you know, what the doctors are helping her and do. And really the reason she's doing that is she's looking for a caretaker, as you said, right. somebody to sit and pay attention. Right. Mm. And usually you can find that in primary care. It's hard to find it in other disciplines, but it's even in primary so care, you have to really search for that person. Well, they're always just prescribing her medicine and then it gets Mm. worse. It has not helped her. It's made it worse. I don't know. It's a whole complicated mess. But Remember that age that, I mean, Dr. Drew, maybe maybe you don't because you went into medical school. But I remember like in my early 20s, like when you just thought what a doctor said was absolutely true. And And you go to a doctor, the doctor said, you know, I don't even, I think I learned about second opinions from TV. Right. And, and COVID, thankfully, blew that all apart. Yeah, well, just also growing <laughs> up and being like, oh, actually, like a but, lot of but people just... we, We've actually, COVID made it go too far. Now now it's hard to get patients to trust you. Yeah. So yeah. It, it's, that's a problem too, so. Yeah, we were very good at like a pendulum swings. Like mm-hmm. I have a lot so, of friends who were radicalized so you, by COVID and I agree with them on almost everything except that they took it to a place of like, kind of own the libs place, you know? What place do you mean? Of, like... 
like you oh, know they the, they want to they want to act out they want to yeah yeah you know. they they just like everything that comes from the left is absolutely wrong and everybody's oh, yeah, stupid yeah. there's the pendulum again yeah yeah i don't know i, I, I don't you know it's so funny i i am always amazed when i get this this country, America, and its craziness, mm-hmm. I'm always amazed when other countries behave like we do. It's a shock you, to me every time. <laughs> it's <laughs> funny because in Israel, the the thing, like the COVID lockdowns, it's really interesting. Like Israelis are very, they don't do what they're told. They're very, you know, but why? You know, always like raise your, your hand and ask the boss, like, you know, the boss will tell you to do something. But like, actually, that's a stupid idea. Let me tell you how to do it. Um, but when COVID happened in Israel, it was kind of like, like we were born for this moment of like something <laughs> trying to kill us, right? It's like <laughs> so people. I wasn't there. I was here um, in New York, which is like a hellhole. But you know, for hearing from my family, it's just like everybody like like buckled down. People were like sitting at home. Uh, my father, who God bless him, love the man, but he's a little more right leaning mm-hmm. and. He took it like I feel like he took it as a sense of like national like thing like no this is what we have to do mm. you know we have we have to be safe we have to stay home I remember a friend of his got a ticket uh, swimming like the the boat the police boat came and he was swimming in the ocean Jesus um, so yeah I mean culturally the countries can be very different but yeah but coming out of it now there's kind of like this fractured reality now where everybody is getting like pieces of information from from their own sources and nobody knows what to believe right, anymore. That's what's happening here. That's which happening doesn't here. mean there's no reality. Yeah. Right? It just means that we don't have like because the Orthodox world did their own thing during COVID. We had uh, our own a lot, reality. A lot of, a lot of weddings COVID. and funerals. <laughs> well, you know what? Like we were it really frustrated me that no doctor was like, you know what, let's take the Orthodox world and do some research right now because mm. we were real time, like able to see things. I mean, by June of 2020, we recognized that kids were not dying from COVID and mm-hmm. all of us sent our kids to camp. And so in the summer of 2020, I drove my kids to LAX. It was empty. There was not a single car there. Came to Delta Terminal and there were 60 Orthodox little Jewish boys getting <laughs> on a flight to overnight camp in Georgia because that was the one state that would allow them to have overnight camp in one of the big camps. And my kids had a freaking blast of a summer because we knew that that was going to be safe and okay. And why didn't anyone look at that and say, okay, here was an experiment which, which seemed to be oh, okay. There were, there were lots of experiments. You weren't allowed to. That's I know. The short I know. There were right. a lot of experiments like that. We'll, we'll just call it Florida. Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Anyway, um, okay. So let's talk about sex in the forties. In, in the for, age forties, okay. age like in it, yeah. Okay. Oh, I thought like in the nineteen forties. Like, I, I don't, I don't have too. anything so, to contribute. Sorry, I just assume so, everyone's in my brain. Um, so to, to me, again, I, I look at things you know through medical priorities. And yes. The, the number one issue I hear about all the time that gets missed, much like the birth control pill side effects and the SSRI side effects get missed in the younger group and the older too. But perimenopause is woefully underrecognized. Again, my profession falling short. It is exceedingly common to I'm have. I'm terrified of a, that. A, well, like scarier than cancer. <laughs> I, I, I'm telling you, uh, hormone replacement. The World Women's Health Initiative was a catastrophe. It was a, mm-hmm. a flawed study. Again, I hope COVID taught people that studies can be terribly flawed, even when everyone decides that they are the standard. Mm-hmm. You, when you hear when you hear words like standard of care, the hair on the back of your neck should stand up. <laughs> and, and it is clear that for most women estrogen and testosterone replacement starting in and around perimenopause can be extraordinarily effective and Mm. can not only reduce mood problems, can obviously preserve your bone density, can general well-being, certainly libido and your relationship will be much better off. These are are risk-reward analyses that you and a physician need to do but, you know, my wife, I had this, you know, I've had this experience many hundreds of times with patients, but I had a person with my wife who was, uh, had very early menopause with her, her mom had it in her thirties wow. and my wife had ovarian hyperstimulation as part of a fertility campaign. And in her thirties, she started complaining about depression and lack of energy and stuff. And of course was told all kinds of stupid s stupid crap and, <laughs> and was put on antidepressants and this and that and the other thing for years Mm-hmm. Uh, and then finally, after about 15 years of that, someone said, you know, why don't you, you, you probably are getting towards menopause now. Maybe we'd get on some, rep-. and she got, and, and fortunately went to someone who also added testosterone to the replacement. Again, when your, your ovaries are 
producing testosterone as well as estrogen and progesterone. And the, the, the testosterone is your main source of libido and vitality, much like it is in the male. It's just at lower concentrations, but equally as important in terms of your overall physiology. And her reaction was so marked that mm. she, she was furious. Like, I've had to put up with this BS for 15 years. And she felt like she, she I'll never forget how she articulated it, which is a sense that a part of her had been dead and been brought back to life. Wow. And that she wasn't really aware of it. No more depression, no more antidepressants, no, nothing like that. Zero, gone. Wow. And so she should have been on, the, on some of this in her 30s. So what and, symptoms should women look for? Vaginal dryness, so pain with intercourse, stinging uh, with uh, you know with ejaculate, with mood disturbances, sleep disturbances, obviously sweats. People are aware of drop in libido, drop in vitality, depression. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it's it's pretty it's vague. Uh, a lot of people feel things like that, and of course, again, as we discussed earlier, women immediately do inventories on themselves. Oh, yeah, yeah. What am I doing? <laughs> I must be doing something wrong. Which is again, you guys stop and <laughs> stop that already. That's kind of our uh, thing, though. It is your thing. Thing. I've noticed yeah. it. <laughs> and um, and then, you know, let's go to somebody who is an understanding it. And it's hard to find a doctor who has an understanding of this stuff in, in an enlightened way. For instance, there still are doctors that will say, now, if you have, you know, BRCA gene and if you have mm-hmm. first degree relatives with breast cancer, it is a different right. risk reward analysis, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but I will just say there is some data now that shows that women on estrogen with testosterone actually have a lower risk of breast cancer. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of interesting data coming in out there that you don't have to be afraid of these things. Is is the myth about, I don't, I shouldn't say is the myth, I'm asking you if this is true or not, like that men and women are on such different pages when it comes to sex, like as they get older, especially, is that true? Like are men always ready and interested and women are the ones who have to like force themselves or is it normal for the opposite to be, you know, the reality or what do you make of that? It's, it's all over the place, of course. Uh, and, and, you know, men have a natural decline in some of this. Um, but generally the male is driving it generally. Mm. Uh, but I, I can't say that women are avoidant or don't like it. It's just if things get in the way of it, like these sorts of biological issues, I would say the number one thing is the biological phenomenon. Right. Um, and I thought you were going to say that, uh, actually something else, I thought you were going to say that we, women work with our head too much or, you, you know, so a re- the, the, the nature of the relationship or how we feel about ourselves that day you know, influences everything in the bedroom. Men get used to that. If, if you're in a long-term relationship, you get used to that early on. <laughs> that, is, that is mystifying to us, but we learn to support it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for your support. Like, like Because you got to understand, our thing is like, no, 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 we want you now. <laughs> and you're feeling bad about what? You shouldn't feel bad yeah. about it. Why? I, I, I'm not, wouldn't yeah. I be involved in that too? Because I something? just saw like a sad <laughs> show so on funny. Netflix and now I can't. <laughs> Stop thinking about it. Yeah. <laughs> well, a friend of mine was just telling me that um, she started t- doing edibles 45 yeah. minutes before she goes upstairs, and her sex life is like a whole new sex life. And she's like almost 40, I think, if not 40. But anyway. I, I've heard of people having those sorts of experiences. Be very careful with the THC concentrations. Yeah. Right now, that's what I was going to ask. We're seeing a shit ton of panic attacks, anxiety, mood disturbances, psychotic episodes. I actually was skeptical that uh, cannabis caused psychosis. Now I am no longer skeptical because of the high concentrations. We're seeing it all the time, like unbelievable numbers. Uh, So please be some... Plenty of people smoke and to eat edibles and are fine, but just be careful. Just know there is a certain amount of risk with that. If you're you're ever curious, um, we had an episode once where, and I don't do drugs, but for some reason I was at Hylaz for Shabbat dinner and I decided to take half an edible. You, you had to deal, you had to take drugs to deal with that? I did, yeah, exactly. Oh, exactly. That's, a, that's a good way to put it. But I decided to take half an edible for some reason. I was like, you know, trying to be like adventurous. And uh, yeah, when, when you, when you're naturally like inclined towards anxiety, yeah. you don't want to take yeah. an edible. No, that's right. 
That's exactly right. I was not right. a fun party guest. That's exactly right. <laughs> and I've seen panic attacks, disabling panic attacks trigger and all kinds mm, of stuff. Especially so, people get like hooked on this stuff, right? Like, Well, there is addiction now too. There's addiction because of the high concentration. And, when did uh, weed, like I'm sorry to sound like a Karen here, but I'm like embracing my inner Karen. <laughs> when did weed become something that we're like so cool with that stuff we wouldn't put up with normally, like you wouldn't put up with cigarette smoke? Right, right, like right. on the street. But you smell weed on the street and it's like, oh, this is normal. Right. Like I leave my house like eight in the morning. Yes. And That's like the subway City. reek of weed. <laughs> yeah. I'm I like, know. what are you, who are you people? What are you yeah. doing smoking weed at 8 a.m.? A lot of people are doing that. That's very, very common. And, uh, I, you know, my daughter who's a recovering weed addict, she's like 18 months sober now. And she always mm. says, wow. look, if you're getting into dabs, which is, you know, low torch, high concentration weed, then there's a problem. That, that's mm-hmm. the threshold where you know you've got you've gotten into a territory with weed that it's it's a problem. It's more and lifestyle, right? Like when I, I was again, we we have decided that this is that to speak anything other than <laughs> this is a glorious product brought to us by God is is to be to be attacked and destroyed. So you, I, I'm just looking for realistic conversation about this this chemical. Right. Uh, I have, I do not think people should be in prison. I mean that's just, that's weird and disgusting because they smoke weed. I, nor do I think people should be shamed or shunned or anything for it. It's whatever. Mm-hmm. But we need to be able to have realistic conversations about the risk reward that's all yeah and it's oh one God. thing to have it so with your reasonable. friends or when you're going yeah. out but you see so many people who like this is just like their day-to-day life look, like, and I don't if it know works if for them good. i'm fine yeah, yeah, look, addiction is addiction is defined by consequences, mm. not by the amount or frequency. And the problem with weed, though, is that the consequences come late and sometimes perniciously, and so you may not be aware of it. Wow, mm. that's so true. Do you deal? I mean, you used to have you had that celebrity rehab show for mm-hmm. a long time. Is that mm-hmm. still on? No. Is that, no, no, no. It's not. I, I ran a recovery center for 30, 30 Well, there 20, are no many celebrities in rehab anymore. <laughs> right. So they close the show. No, I ran. I ran a, a big treatment center for twenty years. Oh wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, is sex addiction real? Is that yeah. a thing? Oh yeah. What, oh, yeah. what does that mean? What, what does that mean if someone's addicted to sex? It, it's it's you know usually sexual traumas underpin it, uh, and really? it is ultimately what the patients always complain about is that they they can't tolerate intimacy, they can't tolerate closeness, and they just want a real relationship. That's usually what they will all say at some mm. point in treatment, and yet they're having lots and lots and lots of relationships of all type and uh, don't seem to understand that. Uh, and it, so again, it's sexual trauma meets sexual compulsivity of some type and consequences, right? Mm. They're hurting themselves physically. Mm. They're breaking the law. They're, you know, they're doing hurting things. Others. They're hurting mm-hmm. others, exactly. Uh, and and they can't stop. And they want to stop. And they've tried to stop many times and can't. Then, then that's it. And wow. usually there's a chemical addiction in there also. Is addictive personality a thing? No, or? it's addictive biology. Mm. The, the many different personalities become drug addicts, but it's addictive genetics. We we now have several candidate genes and groupings of genes that that are responsible for this syndrome. Mm. Uh, my, my favorite one is a favorite two are uh, discovered by a guy named uh, Shuckett down in San Diego, where he discovered that he he had a cohort of sons of alcoholic fathers, and he was trying to figure out what what behavior, what marker uh, predicted alcoholism in these kids. And it was one thing, resistance to alcohol intoxication. Wow. So the sons of alcoholic fathers that could to drink their their peers under the table, those guys became the alcoholics. Wow. Well, it, it, just, it turns out that there are the resistance to alcohol intoxication throughout the mammalian kingdom, mm-hmm. all the way down to the fruit fly. Really? So he, he So he invented a system called the inebriometer where he put – alcohol vapors in with the fruit flies. And uh, he discovered two genes that were responsible for the resistance, the flies that were left flying around at the end. One was the LL allele of the serotonin transporter, and the other was a single amino acid substitution of the GABA-A receptor, which is, we know, highly, highly involved in the biology of alcohol. And um, he went back to the kids and found that if they had one of those genes, they had about a 60% probability of developing alcoholism. But he had a couple dozen kids that had both the gene, both the LL allele and the the GABA-A change. And those kids had a 100% alcoholism regardless of the environment in which they were raised. Oh my gosh. I just love the idea of a doctor getting fruit flies drunk from (laughs) work. (laughs) 
inebriometer. That's, that's crazy. So I had no idea. And that's and there are many other genes. The genes are getting pretty well worked out. And we actually have other genes that sort of get turned on during the evolution of the disease that increase how it accelerates and how different parts of the brain shut down. Mm. Is porn addiction a big concern for that, you? That's sex addiction. Right. Okay. So very that's common. under sex addiction. Very okay. common. Mm. Right. I know. And is that like when you hear, I mean, I hear this all the time about everyone's choking each other and hitting and I don't know, making <laughs> sex like mm. scary. And mm. I don't, is that part of porn issues or it, what? It is, it's kink. That's, I don't want people to con, confuse kink. And by the way, I have to go in a minute here. I'm yeah, no worries. I know. Let's finish um, off on this. This but, is a but, great. Okay. Yeah, the, <laughs> just really wanted to get that one out of the <laughs> way. Uh, don't confuse kink with something something needing more and more arousing material in pornography. Okay. Porn addiction is is such that where it, the way it commonly manifests is somebody will be looking at certain things and it just it just doesn't become arousing anymore. So they start looking for more and more and mm. more arousing kinds of images and they end up in bad places. They end up mm. in sometimes illegal places, uh, just trying to get some sort of arousal going again. Uh, and uh, also common in people who've had a history of opiate addiction. It's hard for them to feel satisfied. That's where the mm. autoerotic stuff kicks in mm. and they can die. It's a common thing to wow. accidentally die. Always wow. looking for that hit of dopamine or mm. whatever. It's, it's not dopamine because uh, people mistake, uh, let me finish with this, is pe you don't feel anything when you get mm -hmm. that hit of dopamine except your brain tells you, do that again. Mm. The high part is the endorphin system. That's something completely different. It's much more complicated. The medial forebrain bundle, which is the reward system, the survival system that says, do that again, that's dopamine, but it's mm. not experienced in any meaningful way consciously other than the, and it's different than cravings. Craving is another oh experience. <laughs> it's just this drive to do it again. That's mm. what dopamine craves. It's all biology. Wow. Mm -hmm. Well, wow. okay, we know you have to go. So thank you so, so much for giving us thank time you. today and thank coming you, on this show. <laughs> and, Interesting conversation. Um, Appreciate it. Thank you for everything you do and all the, I mean, just the education is really, what you put out there in the world is really, really helpful. And so I appreciate I am in this very, very lucky position that I I, I just want to make a difference. Uh, and I've been, I've been granted this crazy career that I never <laughs> expected where doors keep opening and I keep trying different things to try to find ways to do something worthwhile. So, Well, you do. Been, and now that you've been like, on this podcast, you're just going to explode. I this feel is, like this is in the Hasidic this world. Is the this is it. This is your breakthrough, breakthrough Dr. This is what Drew. it's all been about to get yeah. here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank, Thank you so, you so, so much. Thank you so much.